Welcome to Lessons from Transformative Leaders. This is episode one of a multi-part series on Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt is one of my favorite United States presidents because of what he had to overcome. He was a man who was no stranger to struggle and always faced it with an optimistic attitude. In part one, we'll go over his time as a child, right up to the point where polio seemed to derail his life. Without spoiling too much of his amazing story, let's dive into Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Franklin was born on January 30th, 1882. He was born into a loving, picture-perfect family in Hyde Park, New York. His childhood was as perfect as anyone could imagine. This was due to two reasons, his wealth and his parents. His father, James Roosevelt, came from a wealthy family, but so did his mother, Sarah. Franklin thought of James like a god, he was both in awe and fear of his father. And unlike other wealthy families who would outsource the raising of their children, Sarah would take the utmost pride and dedication to raising Franklin. At an early age, he was put on a strict regimen of a 7 a.m. wake-up time with an 8 breakfast, lessons till 11, lunch at 12, followed by more lessons until 4, then finally, 2 hours of play, followed by bedtime. Due to Sarah's regiment and the tutors she hired, Franklin's mind was developing much quicker than others his age in public school. While others were learning their ABCs, Franklin was writing letters in German. In addition, Franklin was never a problem child. So he never fussed at his schooling, and Sarah would write that Franklin never required them to be strict with him. Another aspect of what made Franklin's childhood so great was their summer home at Campobello. Here, he was taught how to sail and navigate the treacherous paths of the sea. In fact, this love of the sea would inspire Franklin to apply to the Naval Academy. But his father did not allow it because he wanted Franklin to take over the family business someday. Another one of Franklin's passions was, surprisingly, stamp collecting. This passion would stick with him all of his life, and as we'll see later, helped Franklin immensely while in the White House. But his perfect picture childhood would quickly change on November 1890, when James had a heart attack. Franklin's solid childhood foundations had a crack in it now. James, who was his active companion, would slowly become an invalid. And this is where we see a unique aspect of Franklin, which sets him apart from everyone his ability to adapt, and his never faltering in his optimism. In Franklin's mind, he thought that any trouble or fuss at all would trigger his father to have another heart attack. So he did whatever he could to make his father's life easier. And this included some extremely unhealthy things, like when a steel rod ripped open part of his scalp, he simply wore a hat and pulled it down to hide the wound from his father. Thinking that the wound would worry him, and therefore worsen James's condition. The other aspect we see here was his optimism. 
when he was not hiding potentially deadly wounds from his father, he would put on an optimistic attitude to make his father feel at ease. Franklin would carry this optimism through the rest of his life. Some would say it was due to religion, others the fact that his childhood has been safe and peaceful. But whenever faced with the problem, Franklin embraced the fact that it would work out in his favor and that everything would be okay. These two factors of adapting and optimism are what made Franklin such a transformative leader, and he would use them to change the world. The next stage in Franklin's life was Groton. Groton was a boarding school for wealthy kids, and initially, Franklin struggled here, mainly because Sarah enrolled him two years after when he was supposed to go. And when he got there, all the other friend groups had formed. And it also didn't help that Franklin, when he was growing up, didn't have many playmates his age. Franklin was alone, and deep down he was struggling at Groton. He said about his time that he felt hopelessly out of things. In addition, one of Franklin's biographers refers to Groton as a Spartan environment. But on the outside, he displayed his signature optimism. He would write home to Sarah that he was mentally and physically thriving, and that he was getting along with everyone. Even though, at the time, Franklin faced a reality where things were dark and gloomy, he chose to buy in to the optimistic reality in his letters to Sarah. He never complained, and he kept trudging through the hardships. And like all great leaders, he willed that reality into existence. His optimism allowed him to overcome the obstacles of loneliness when he found his love of the debate team. On the debate team, we see streaks of what made him such a great leader. He would take in multiple viewpoints and then call out the emotions of the audience. With his passion for debate, life at Groton became easier. By the end of his time there, he had great friends and had made good enough grades to get into Harvard. But just as life was starting to go his way, his father suffered a fatal heart attack. Once again, Franklin's life had been turned upside down. Now he was the man of his family, and it was especially stressful because now his mother was completely alone. Franklin was at a time in his life where he was trying to figure out who he was and what he wanted. But Sarah was becoming overbearing. A family friend wrote that she would not let her son call his soul his own. So Franklin had to strike a balance of supporting his mother and chasing his ambitions without hurting her feelings. Once again, this is a streak of genius that he would employ in his presidency when he had to chase his ambitions without hurting the other politicians' feelings. While Franklin's family life might not have been going well, his life at Harvard was luxurious. His college apartment was around $400 a year, which was about the average amount an American family had to live off of. Yet, this life of luxury did not stop him from working hard. His first step as an independent man was joining the Crimson newspaper, where he worked tirelessly to make the staff. But even with putting in over six hours a day in addition to his schooling, he wasn't selected to be on the staff. But luckily, it was around the early 1900s, 
and he shared his last name with a political superstar, Teddy Roosevelt. I would love to dive into his life, but I think that's a podcast for another time. Regardless, Teddy was coming to deliver a secret guest lecture to students at Harvard. Franklin found out about it in a conversation with Teddy a few days prior and rushed to the Crimson to break the news. The story would hit page one of the newspaper, and Franklin was elected to the staff a few days later. At the Crimson, Franklin thrived. Year after year, he climbed the ladder and earned himself the position of editor-in-chief of the paper. Once again, those streaks of leadership started to shine brighter and brighter. While at Groton, we got to see how he adapted and used his optimism to will his reality into existence. At the Crimson, we see how well Franklin treated and motivated his team. One of Franklin's co-workers at the Crimson wrote about Franklin that he had a force of personality, that he liked people, and he made them instinctively like him. Moreover, in his geniality, there was a kind of frictionless command. In all, the Crimson is where Franklin started to find himself as a man and a leader. The next step Franklin would make in becoming his own man was getting married. Unbeknownst to pretty much everyone in Franklin's life was that he had fallen in love with his cousin, Eleanor Roosevelt. Now, before you freak out too much that one of the United States' greatest presidents married his cousin, Eleanor was his fifth cousin once removed. Still a bit odd to our modern eye, but Franklin knew what he wanted. Because in an announcement to everyone, he announced him and Eleanor were getting married. Everyone was in complete disbelief, especially his mother, who had no idea they were even interested in each other. Now again, before we start questioning why someone would keep the person they are in love with a secret, we have to remember that Sarah was an overbearing mother. Franklin thought that if he let Sarah know that he was in love with Eleanor, that her heart would be broken, that her son's love was split between her and Eleanor. Regardless, Franklin's marriage to Eleanor was a great partnership in the beginning. Eleanor was a person who deeply cared for others and had an intellectual curiosity that appealed to Franklin. But an interesting note are Eleanor and Franklin's children. Now this story has nothing to do with leadership, but I thought it was a horrifying slash comical story. Franklin was a hands-off father, and on the other hand, Eleanor was a well-intentioned mother. I say well-intentioned because of this story. Because Eleanor had heard that fresh air was great for children, she had a chicken wire cage built. She then put her child in it and hung it out the window feeling accomplished that she was providing for her child and helping their growth through giving them some fresh air, she set about her duties in the house. This absolutely horrified their neighbor who came knocking, demanding that she pull her crying child back inside before she calls the 1920s version of Child Protection Services. Eleanor even admits that she was not a great mother, despite her best attempts. So again... So again, well-intentioned, but maybe not the greatest implementation. But back to the story. Once Franklin was married and graduated from college, 
he started his work as a junior law clerk at a big firm in New York. He worked, but he was not satisfied. During a slow period, all the young clerks would gather and discuss their hopes and dreams. When it was Franklin's turn, he said it was his dream to enter political life. Then, like a master of chess, explained in detail of how he was going to go from state assembly all the way to the White House. No one in the room doubted his plan. But the first step in his master plan was getting into state congress. The opportunity came when all of a sudden Franklin was kidnapped from his work and brought to a police picnic where he was forced against his will to deliver a political speech. At least, that's how Franklin told it. In reality, John Mack told him of an opportunity to run for state assembly, and that this picnic speech would be his first step. Without second-guessing, Franklin accepted the offer to run. However, despite his best efforts, the man who was retiring from the seat Franklin was running for decided not to retire. All might have seemed lost, but instead they offered him a better position of state senator. However, this came with a huge downside. Republicans controlled the state senate, and Franklin's odds to win were 1-5. to five. But, just like Ike Rotten, Franklin took on the challenge with his optimistic outlook. One of Franklin's weaknesses at the time was giving speeches. While he failed to make sweeping impressions to the crowd, he excelled at making friends with anyone and everyone on the campaign trail. During this period of Franklin's life, we see two interesting dynamics at work. His ability to work harder than everyone else and treat everyone like a dear friend. Everywhere he went, he was humble and truly cared about the interests of his voters. In addition, he went everywhere humanly possible. He utilized the coming of automobiles to revolutionize how people campaigned. He stormed across the countryside, meeting and making as many friends as possible. And these two dynamics paid off on election day, when Franklin won by the largest margin than any other Democrat in the state. Once again, Franklin had willed his reality into existence. If Franklin's years growing up were calm and trouble-free, he was now entering what I like to call his edgy teenager years. In these years, he would make a lot of mistakes, but he would also learn and grow from this experience. So what made Franklin an edgy teenager? Well, there is currently a Democrat organization called the Tammany. Tammany was a political machine which appealed to social activists and had a significant amount of influence on New York politics. In the past, they represented bossism and corruption, but they were starting to turn a new leaf by supporting more and more progressive reforms. I like to consider them Franklin's parents in this analogy. Whatever the Tammany said or did, Franklin venomously opposed it. However, while fighting this corruption might have seemed like a great thing, Sometimes it would seem that Franklin was just fighting for the sake of fighting, because when given other opportunities to improve the social welfare of others in his district, he ignored their pleas. But whenever given a chance to rebel against Tammany, Franklin was armed and ready to go. Some biographers stated that he opposed Tammany not based on substance, but for attention and power. Franklin, like most teenagers, 
embraced the life of a rebel and compared it to being at war. But this war did not make Franklin a lot of friends. Franklin once said he was an awfully mean cuss when he went into politics. To the people around him, it seemed he did not care about the policies. He just enjoyed sticking it to the man. But not only was everyone in Tammany getting frustrated and starting to hate Franklin, so were other reformers who brought their reforms to the rebellious Franklin, only to be ignored. For example, after the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, a factory fire that burned alive 145 people, someone was proposing a policy to reform factory conditions to make sure that never happened again. Something that Franklin the so-called champion of the people, ignored. On the other hand, Tammany helped get the bill to the floor. It was here where Franklin was about to learn an important lesson. He needed to work with others. He couldn't be the lone cowboy in the wild, wild west that was American politics. Whether he liked it or not, he would need the Tammany later on. However, one bright side of Franklin crusading across the New York Assembly was that he caught the eye of Woodrow Wilson. Franklin would help Wilson campaign and then be offered the role of Secretary of the Navy, a job Franklin dreamed about. When offered the position, Franklin said, quote, I have a love of ships and have been a student of the Navy, and the Assistant Secretaryship is the one place above others I would love to hold. End quote. But aside from the job meeting Franklin's passions, it was also the next step on the trail to the presidency. The assistant naval secretary job was one of the largest times of growth for Franklin. His streaks of leadership that we've seen earlier in his life come into full view at this period. He would exit his rebellious teenager years into a wiser, more humble man. This is mainly because he was forced to play second fiddle to the secretary, Josephus Daniels. Daniels and Franklin were complete opposites. In the beginning of his post, Franklin strongly disliked Daniels. Franklin would call Daniels, pardon my language here, a fuddy-duddy, which I'm assuming was a pretty big insult back in the 1910s. But Daniels was a fuddy-duddy because he oversaw naval policy and big strategic initiatives, and Franklin thought he was too weak to take on the challenges that the Navy offered. And while Daniel handled the big-picture things, Franklin handled most of the operations and administered the Navy. And Franklin thought policy needed to move towards combat readiness as soon as possible, but Daniel was slow and seemed simple with his work at first. But under that exterior laid an iron will and an old-school badass. A great example was Daniel's showdown with the steel monopolies. When he was building the famous battleship Arizona, which now lies at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, the steel companies all price-fixed and submitted the same bid. But Daniel's told men to come back with something better. However, the monopolies again came back and delivered the same bid. Infuriated, Daniels told them to hit the road and got in contact with the British Steel Company to get a bid, which ended up being substantially lower. And finally, he gave this number to the American Steel Companies and told them to match it, which they ended up doing. Daniels would end up saving about 10% of the total cost of the ship and earn the respect of Franklin. 
No longer was Daniels a fuddy-duddy at Franklin. They now started their relationship, which would be one of the most beneficial in Franklin's life. Mainly, Franklin learned how to play politics, something he would need to do to cut through the bureaucratic driftwood of the Naval Department. In order to push the bureaucrats into the future, he needed to work with them and respect their needs, a lesson he had learned while dealing with the Temeni. The first step down this road was getting Charles McCarthy, a veteran in the department, to buy into Franklin's vision. McCarthy would help keep the waters calm as Franklin steamed his way to efficiencies and modernization. And to help fuel Franklin's steamboat, he brought on Lewis Howe, who would become invaluable to Franklin for the rest of his life. Howe was essentially a no-man, who would always speak his mind when Franklin was either getting too big for his britches or drifting off course. In addition to being a no-man, no one more than Howe believed that Franklin could make it to the White House. Howe once told a reporter that, quote, I had made up my mind that he was of presidential timber and that nothing but an accident could keep him from being the president of the United States. And while he saw presidential timber in Franklin, Howe was not afraid to cut him down a bit. Howe was overheard on the phone with Franklin one day saying, You damned fool. You can't do that. You simply can't do it. If you do it, you're a fool. Just a damned idiotic fool. So, with these driving forces of old and new, Franklin was building a mosaic, which would guide him through the treacherous waters of change. In addition to the mosaic, instead of sitting up in his ivory tower in Washington, Franklin actually visited naval sites and factories to listen to the common man with what needed to be changed. He made every person from the lowest worker to Daniels feel like they were a part of the team and that they had valuable input. And this humble leadership style resulted in there not being a single strike during Franklin's tenure, an impressive feat in a time where strikes were extremely common. Another way Franklin earned the respect of the working man was when he piloted a 700-ton destroyer through some narrows. At first, its captain was extremely hesitant to let this Washington dandy try to sail his battleship, saying that this was no pleasure barge. However, that captain was soon left wordless when Franklin seamlessly cut through the narrows. The other way Franklin would transform the Navy was through his willingness to fail fast. In Franklin's optimistic mind, anything could be done. He just needed to try something. In this time, he truly started to embody his famous quote, which is now plastered on every inspirational Facebook post. Quote, It is common sense to take a method and try it. If it fails, admit it frankly and try another. But above all, try something. End quote. Through this attitude, he cut through the red tape and made some huge efficiencies within the department. The assistant naval post was the schooling Franklin needed to grow up into the president he would eventually become. He learned how to work with the old and motivate them to become something new, something better. He started practicing his no-matter-what, try-something attitude, which he would need during the Great Depression. But most of all, he learned how to be humble. His mentorship with the fuddy-duddy Daniels taught him the ins and outs of the political world. He knew when to rebel, but when to play his hands and work along with others. But this was not the end for Franklin. He was still a long ways down his path to the presidency. 
Yet, with World War I looming, Franklin struggled in his relationship with Daniels. While Daniels was being slow and cautious, Franklin wanted action now. He thought the department was being lazy and that it would lead to disaster when America finally entered the war. He would sometimes display his inner rebel and do and say things that were contrary to Daniel's orders. For example, he told the press about the poor combat readiness of the fleet, which caused uproar. But every time, Daniels reined him in, and every time, Franklin learned a lesson in humility. But Franklin's crowning moment was at the start of World War I. While other military departments were sluggish to prepare for war, the Naval Department was gassed up and ready to go because of Franklin. My favorite story from this moment was when President Wilson summoned Franklin to the White House with the Army Chief of Staff. And because Franklin was so proactive in modernizing the Navy through that mosaic and the willingness to fail, he had cornered the market on military supplies, and the Army was left empty-handed, and Wilson had to order Franklin to share his supplies with the Army. In all, Franklin, during this time, became revered as an administrator. But once his time in the Navy came to a close, the next major step Franklin would take was running for the vice presidency. However, Franklin knew there was no chance for him to actually win, because the political tides were changing, and the Republican was almost guaranteed to make it into the presidency. But Franklin, with his everlasting optimistic attitude, saw it as a win-win for him. He would gain the national recognition when his ticket lost, but he would not be blamed for the failure. However, it also wasn't all smooth sailing for Franklin, because he was working 18-hour days, and during those long days, he would start to improvise some of his speeches, and some very untrue things spilled out of his mouth. Just like Al Gore said he invented the internet, Franklin took credit for running a few republics in South America, and he even took credit for writing the Haitian Constitution. And according to Franklin, it was a pretty good constitution too. I have no idea how someone gets to a point in a speech where they have the opportunity to claim they wrote Haiti's constitution, but Franklin found a way. And sadly, his opponents would use these false claims against him. And on election day, unsurprisingly, Franklin's ticket lost. And while his ticket lost, Franklin certainly did not. His political stock was rising as fast as the radio bubble in the late 1920s. But soon, Franklin's stock would crash as hard as the market during the Great Depression. All would seem lost. He would have to rely on the lessons he learned on his path. And during this time, he'll transform those streaks of greatness we've seen so far into something brighter than the rising sun. 